May be seated. And if you would turn in your Bibles to First Peter chapter one, we're going to continue our series through the book of First Peter. And if you don't have your Bibles, the scripture is printed for you on page eight of the worship guide. Please join and read with me. <clears throat> Silently as I read the word from 1 Peter, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you who were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not which is perishable, not, not, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who, though, who through him our believers in God, who raised him from the dead and give him, gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Please join me in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would use your word this morning to transform our hearts and to encourage us this morning to pursue holiness and obedience. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you've seen the new Toy Story, Toy Story 4, uh, you know that they've introduced a new character to the franchise. His name is Forky, and he's actually a fork. Well, technically he's a spork, but the creators of Toy Story didn't think that kids would necessarily know the difference between a spork and a fork. So he's forky. And, and he has two different googly eyes, size, two different size googly eyes for eyes, and, and Play-Doh unibrow and, and a Play-Doh mouth, and, and pipe cleaner for arms, and a, a popsicle stick that's broken in half and attached with bubble gum as feet. Now, Bonnie, who now owns all the toys from the franchise that we know and love, Woody and Buzz and all the rest, made Forky out of trash during a meet and greet for her preschool. And, and though he was made out of trash, Forky is now a toy. In fact, we learn that Woody believes that that Forky is the most important toy to Bonnie, a 
at that time, that, that she needs him in order to be able to get through preschool. But there's a problem. Forky still thinks he's trash. So he keeps wanting to go back to what he's used to. For him, that's the trash can. And he keeps trying to run back to the trash can over and over. And it's, it's probably the funniest part of the movie, seeing Woody work so hard to keep Forky from running and throwing himself in the trash over and over. And how hard he has to work to try to convince him. He, he sets himself up like, don't, don't get past me, I'm going to get you. And it's hilarious to us. But as silly as it, it might sound, I think that we're all just like Forky. Not that we're made out of trash, but we are like Forky because we have been made into something new. But we keep running back to who we were. And, and the things that we desired, we keep running back to our sins. Maybe because it's familiar to us. But in verse 14, Peter writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. I think that's a reminder that we are no longer slaves to sin. We have been set free from the bondage of sin. Therefore, do not continue to desire the things that you desired before in your former ignorance. I think that we see this in the first word of verse 13. This whole paragraph starts with a very important word. The word therefore. I've always been taught that whenever you see a therefore in scripture, you have to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? And here, it makes an important shift. And Peter's argument. In verses 1 through 12, Peter has been celebrating the work that God has done for his elect exiles. How the whole of the Trinity has worked together to accomplish the salvation of his people. And it is through this salvation that we have a living hope, an imperishable inheritance, an inexpressible joy. He's made us into something new. How we as believers in this age have, after the time of Christ, have a privilege of being able to experience the gospel, as we looked at last week in verses 10 through 12. But when he says, therefore, in verse 13, he is saying, because of all of that, because of everything that God has done for you and in you, therefore, this is how you should now live. One of the most beautiful truths of Scripture to me is that God's commands are always preceded by His grace. One commentator puts it this way, the imperatives or the commands or the what we are to do of Christian living always begin with therefore. God's grace always comes first. And his commands give us direction for how we are to respond to his grace. And in this passage, Peter gives us three commands. 
that we must live in hope, that we must live in holiness, and that we must live in fear. First Peter instructs us that we must live in hope. Look again at verse 13 with me where he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The imperative in the sentence is set your hope. And in verse 3, if we look back to verse 3, Peter says that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Now in verse 13, he's saying, because you have been given this hope, we are called to live in that hope, to live in it. We are to hope fully on the promise of Jesus and his return when he will come and bring about the imperishable and undefiled and unfading inheritance that he has kept in heaven for us. But Peter also gives a picture of how we are to set our hope fully in Jesus through preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded. First, he says we are to prepare our minds for action. The literal translation of this phrase is to gird up the loins of your mind. And that phrase, gird up your loins, is, is unfamiliar to us, but in the Old Testament and even in Peter's day, men would wear these long robes. I, I've never really tried to, to run or to do things in a long robe, but I imagine that it wouldn't be ideal. So, what they would do is that they would take the bottom of their robe and they would grab it and they would bring it up and wrap it around themselves and then fasten it in their belts. And it was kind of like they were taking their robe and making it into shorts to free up their legs and they're ready for action. They're ready to run. This is how the Israelites were, were instructed to eat the Passover meal, ready to be set free and begin their journey to the promised land. They had to be ready. And for us, we, we do not know the day or hour of Christ's return. So Peter is calling us to wait expectantly, ready for him to come at any moment. Yet, when, when we run back to our sin, we begin to set our hope on things of this world and we cling to them. We're not, we're not really ready to leave them behind. And we're not ready for Christ to return. Our hope is not in him. It's in the things of this world. I was thinking about this. You know, if your house catches on fire and you wake up in the middle of the night and there's smoke all around and, and you see flames all around, you have to be ready to get out right away and leave everything behind. Unlike 
a picture that we've seen. If anybody watches This or uh, This Is Us, where, where Jack Pearson has that very thing happen to him. Him and his family are in the house when fire breaks out. And, and he gets everybody out, but then he goes back in to get picture albums and a dog. And he ends up, he's not ready to leave those things behind, and he ends up dying because of it, because of smoke inhalation. You need to be ready to just leave those things behind at a moment's notice. But not only does Peter instruct us to be ready for Jesus' return, he also says that we should be sober-minded. Peter is not simply forbidding uh, physical drunkenness here. That's more of a way of saying that we need to keep our mind sharp. As one commentator puts it, not letting the mind wander into any other kind of mental intoxication or addiction which inhibits spiritual alertness or laziness of mind which lulls Christians into sin through carelessness. Our minds can be so easily intoxicated by the things of this world, sometimes even good things, that we begin to lose sight of the hope that we have in Christ. Now, these two things of being ready, <clears throat> being ready and being sober-minded fit well together clinging to or being intoxicated by the things of this world are ways that we run back to our sin. But we must set our hope fully in Christ and his return and leave our sin behind. Now Peter has told us that we have been given a new hope that is in Christ and his return. Yet we struggle to live in light of that hope because we continue to run back to the passions that we had in our former ignorance. We continue to run back to our sin by placing our hope in things of this world. I tell you, I've been convicted of this so much more in the last few months as coronavirus has exposed my idols over and over again the more that normal life became disrupted, the more I began to realize how much I placed my hope in things like my ability to have control, my sense of security and safety, my need for the approval of others, and so many other things that I have placed my hope in. Yet Peter is reminding us that our hope should not be in the things of this world, any of these things. Though these things can be intoxicating because they seem familiar, or, or maybe they seem more tangible and immediate, Peter reminds us that they cannot provide true hope. So he calls us to set our hope in Christ's return, not of the things of this world. But this is not a passive command here. If we are to live in hope, we must be actively working to stay ready and not be intoxicated by our former passions. In Colossians 3, Paul says that we do this by setting our minds 
on things above. So how do we set our mind on things above? We, we can do this by being renewed in our hope in Christ through coming together in worship and, and hearing his word preached and being reminded of and learn more about the hope that we have in Christ. We can do this through prayer, praying that, that Christ would come quickly. That helps us to remain ready. Have you ever prayed those words, Jesus, come quickly, yet felt this hesitation as you're saying it? You're expressing that desire in prayer, and yet it's revealing the ways that you're clinging to the things of this world, the ways that you aren't quite ready for Jesus to come quickly. But living in hope is not just something that we can do on Sunday mornings or when we pray. It's a continual day-in, day-out frame of mind. You know, a few weeks ago, Paul talked about our hope being given to us as it's a fixed horizon. He was, he was talking about how when dancers spin, they, they, they pick a point to focus on, and it keeps them from being disoriented. That's what Peter's talking about here. We have a fixed point that we set our eyes on that keeps us from being disoriented, and it keeps us ready and it keeps us from being intoxicated by the things of this world. Peter is saying that God has given us that new horizon, and he's calling us to keep looking to it and not to the things of this world. Not only does Peter call us, a command, we have a command here to respond to grace that we have been given by, by living in hope, but Peter also instructs us to live in holiness. If you would, look at verse 15 with me. He says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The imperative here, the command here, is that we are to be holy. To be holy means that we are to be set apart from sin and set aside for the purpose of bringing glory to God. This is the same command that God gave to the Israelites in many places in Leviticus, including Leviticus chapter 20, which Buck read from earlier. God told the Israelites that as his chosen people, they were to be set apart to live differently than all the people who they would be living in the midst of. We also are called to live differently. The question is, is your life different than those who don't know Jesus? This call to be holy, though, Peter gives us a pattern in which we are to be holy. It's to be patterned off of God himself. He says we are to be holy as he is holy. When Peter says, as obedient children, in verse 14, it, it reminds us that we are called, what we are called to do 
is imitate our Father. We look to Him to see the pattern of holiness at which we are to follow. Now, if you want a picture of, of what it looks like to imitate somebody, just think for a moment. Look, look to the children around you. Children imitate their parents constantly. Uh, one way that I, I saw this happening recently is Sarah actually sent me a, a video of Samuel sitting down and reading the book, um, uh, Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus. And, and as he's just kind of flipping through the pages, and it's jabber, 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 jabber. And then there are just certain points that he, he would imitate me so clearly in the way that I would read the book. And, you know, it's not even printed in the book, but, you know, he, the pigeon keeps asking, can I, can I drive the bus? And he gives this reason and that reason. And the way I read the book is to say, once the pigeon says that, I say, no. So Samuel is sitting there, jibber, 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 no. Jibber, 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 no. Jibber, 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 no. He's imitating the way that I read it. And even throughout some of the points of the book, he uses the same inflection that I use. And it was really cute. But it just reminded me how often kids imitate their parents. Sometimes, as parents, we need to be reminded of this and unfortunately also imitate our bad behaviors. We forget that they're watching us. But do you long, the question is, do you long to be more like your Father in heaven? If so, what are the ways that you are striving to be more like him? How are you striving to imitate your father more and more each day? But the command to imitate God is not an easy command. Because God is holy. And what that means is that he is perfectly without sin. So is Peter saying here that we are to be perfect as God is perfect? Yes, he is. This echoes what Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, chapter 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This makes us uncomfortable because we know it is impossible for us to be perfect. And me, I, I'm, a, I'm a perfectionist. And I'm not the good kind of perfectionist either. I'm not the kind of perfectionist that, that drives you to continue to work harder and become better. When I know that I can't do something perfectly, I often feel defeated. And I don't give it my all. Oftentimes I even give up. But does knowing that you cannot be holy as your Father in heaven is holy, perfect, make it hard for you to pursue holiness? But that is why it is so important for us to remember the indicative that comes before 
he gives us this command. He reminds us of it again when he says, but as he who called you, this call is not an invitation. It's an effectual call. It reminds us that Peter is speaking to those who are in Christ, those who have been born again to a living hope. As we look to verses 18 through 21, we see Peter is talking to those who have been ransomed by the blood of Christ, who was like the lamb without blemish or spot. He was perfect without sin. It is impossible for us to be holy as God is holy, but Jesus satisfied this demand for us. His perfection has been credited to us in such a way that when he says that we are to be holy, it is like he is saying, live according to your new identity in Christ. It's like Woody trying to tell Forky, you're a toy now. Live as a toy. Because we are holy in Christ, our striving to live in holiness is not an effort to earn God's love and favor. Thank goodness for that. Because I keep running back to my sin, sinful passions. Over and over again, I keep falling, failing to live according to my new identity in Christ. But he not only worked in us to give us this new identity, he is also at work in us to give us new passions, enabling us more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Paul gives us a picture of what it looks like to live in holiness again in Colossians 3 when he tells us to put to death the old self. Then in verse 12, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is who you are, holy and beloved. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These are ways we imitate our Father. But Peter also adds that we are to be holy in all all our conduct. What he is saying here is that as we live out this new identity, who we are in Christ, it does not just change our behavior, but it changes everything. It affects every part of our lives. One commentator summarizes this in this way. He says, To be holy as God is holy includes a full and pervading holiness that reaches into every aspect of our personalities. It involves not only avoiding outward sin, but also maintaining an instinctive delight in, our, in God and His holiness as an undercurrent of heart and mind throughout the day. There is no part of our lives that is not touched by this call to live in holiness. 
It must not just change what we do for an hour or two on Sunday morning. That has to change everything. Some things we're more comfortable allowing this change than others. But it means everything. From, from how we consume media to how we interact on social media, that we actually have to treat people who may disagree with us, whether politically or otherwise, with kindness. And how we treat them. Or how we treat people who are different from us. Or how we talk about people when they're not around. Or are the, the things that we allow our mind to dwell on. Or to worry about even. Changes where we allow our eyes to linger. It changes the words we use, the language we use, we speak with. It changes the way that we spend our money, spend or give of our money. The way we love and care for others. All of these things and many more. What, what our pursuit of holiness is telling us is rather running back to our sin or the sin of our old self, we are to imitate our Father who is holy. But Peter not only says that we must live in hope and live in holiness, then he also tells us that we must live in fear. Look at verse 17 with me. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each, uh, each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter says that we are conduct, to conduct ourselves with fear during the time of our exile. And you may be thinking, wait a minute. How, how, does, how do we live in hope and, and live in fear at the same time? Are, aren't these two things contradicting one another? I don't think they are if we have a proper understanding of fear here. We, we tend to think of fear just as something we are afraid of most of the time because of the consequences it could bring to us. But when the Bible instructs us to fear the Lord, it's a different kind of fear. It means to stand in awe of Him. It's a reverent fear. If we are in Christ, we have no need to live in terror because of, the, of God's wrath. Because remember, the gospel tells us that, that God is a judge who judges impartially, but our verdict has already been pronounced. That being said, if you are here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Jesus, the wrath of God should bring you fear in the sense that it terrifies you. 
The only way to receive this verdict of justified is through faith in Jesus. But you too can be washed by the precious blood of Christ by placing your faith in him, even this morning. But why then is Peter reminding his readers that that God is an impartial judge if we are already pronounced innocent? I think verses 18 through 21, again, shed some light on this. It's in these verses that Peter makes the argument for why we should live in fear. And it's in these verses that that Peter reminds us that Jesus paid the ransom with his blood. He's reminding us that, that God is an impartial judge, and as an impartial judge, did not hold back his wrath as he poured it out on his son. He is reminding us of the great cost that Jesus paid on the cross for us. If our salvation required the payment of such a great cost, how can we then run back to the same sin that, just, that Jesus just set us free from? John Piper uh, actually gives an illustration of this in in which he he talks about, imagine a a 16-year-old girl is kidnapped. And the kidnappers send the ransom demands to the father. And the father has no way of paying the steep cost of this ransom. So he goes and he sells everything he has. He sells his house and his car and Any money that he can liquidate, he he does to get enough money to pay this ransom. And he goes and he gathers all the money and and he takes it to the place where he's supposed to drop the money. And he sees his daughter who's supposed to grab it and and take it back to the captors. And his his daughter comes and she grabs the money and she looks at the father and says, forget you. And walks back to the captors. Puts her arm around the one who kidnapped her and walks off with the money. Can you imagine how much it would grieve the father to have this happen? Do you think that our Father in heaven, when we run back to our sin, think that that grieves him? The very sin that that Jesus gave his life and took the wrath of God upon himself in order to set us free from, we run back to it. I think what Peter is saying is that to conduct ourselves with reverent fear means that we would fear bringing that kind of grief and displeasure to our Father. Maybe another way to look at it is this. When I was growing up, I looked up to my dad 
so much, as, as many young children do, right? Fathers are their heroes. I revered him. And because I loved him in this way, I conducted myself in fear of disappointing him. I long for him to be pleased with me, for him to tell me that he was proud of me. It was that reverent fear of, of him that motivated me towards obedience to him. You know, it, it didn't hurt that he had a humongous hand that really didn't feel good against my keister when I did disobey. Certainly didn't hurt. And that kind of fatherly discipline may have been in Peter's mind here as well. That, that even though through Christ we are we're saved from the eternal consequences of our sin, and in his fatherly discipline, he still allows us to experience the consequences of our sin now. Again, this is a reminder that, that sin is destructive and it has consequences, and Jesus had to pay those consequences. You know, I was reminded of this reality a little bit yesterday. Let me just tell you, if you are, are stubborn and prideful and refuse to put sunscreen on your legs, then go kayaking for five hours, your legs will get roasted. It's a consequence that I faced. But the kind of fear that comes out of, the kind of fear that is a reverent fear that, that, that comes out of a great love and awe of our Father, that kind of fear, that kind of fear is a great motivator. I think that's what Peter is pointing us to here. Now, as I was studying this passage, I, I couldn't help but to think about the Israelites coming out of Egypt. You know, I used to read the book of Exodus almost, and almost get to the point where I wanted to scream at the page, thinking, what is wrong with you people? It, it was just a couple of pages ago that God was bringing plagues upon those who held you captive and enslaved you, and, and he... He also split the Red Sea before your very eyes. He performed all these great miracles. And he put his power on display over and over again for you in order that you may be free from slavery in Egypt. Yet all you do is seem to whine and complain over and over again. And, and then when they would say that they wanted to go back to Egypt... I think you've got to be kidding me. Why would you want to go back to Egypt? What they were familiar with. They had this sense of comfort in some ways. I would read the story with such arrogance, thinking I would never, I would never do something like that. But now when I read the story of Exodus, I can't help but think how much I'm just like the Israelites. 
God has saved me from the bondage of sin, even by paying the tremendous price of pouring out his wrath upon his only son so I could have this freedom. Yet over and over again, I continue to run back to my sin. And as much as I try to drudge up the willpower to stop, to just stop running back to the sin, it doesn't seem to have that much effect. I think the reason for that is because the power and ability for me to do what we are commanded of by Peter to do in these verses to live in hope and holiness and reverent fear is not found in me. It's not found in ourselves. Rather, it comes from the therefore. And the more that our love for God increases, the more that we look and gaze at the gospel and fall more deeply in love with God because of the new identity that he has given us. Because of all that God has done for us in the gospel, the more we look to that, the more we will be enabled to live in hope, to live in holiness, and to live in reverent fear. Please join me in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would renew us in your love this morning. And that you would be at work in our hearts, bringing us to a deeper and deeper love of you each day. You will remind us of the hope that we have in you so that we can begin to live in that hope. That you would remind us each day of who we are in Christ so that we can live according to our new identity. Lord, that you would work in our hearts in such a way that you deepen our awe of you, our reverence of you, our love of you, in such a way that you empower us to pursue you more and more each and every day. You help us to live in fear, in reverent fear. Lord, as we come together this morning, I also want to lift up our fathers today. That this, on Father's Day, would be a day that they would be able to enjoy the gifts of their families. Lord, I also pray for those to whom Father's Day brings grief or disappointment, whether it's from the loss of a father or a child, a longing to be a father, 
or from strained relationships between fathers and children. Pray that you would bring comfort and healing to them. Lord, we continue to pray that you would bring an end to the coronavirus. Though we have regained some sense of normalcy, though we have been able to get back to some of the things we're used to doing, it's still affecting us greatly, whether it's from being so worried anytime we feel sick or just feeling scared to interact with other peoples the way we would, would before, or not knowing what we can and cannot do. This has been disruptive to our lives. I thank you for the ways that this disruption has revealed our idols, and I pray that you would continue to do that work in our hearts, that you would continue to work in us in such a way that we would place our hope fully in you and not in these things of this world. But Lord, we still pray that you would provide a vaccine or a way that this deadly virus would be treated so we would not have to live in fear. Lord, we also pray this morning again for our graduates. They have had so many things disrupted over the last few months. But Lord, I pray that as we gather this evening to acknowledge their accomplishments, that they would feel loved and celebrated. And as they prepare to, to come and, and receive their diplomas later on in the week, you, I thank you that you brought that about, that they are able to still have that. Lord, I pray that they, they would just be looking forward to the next steps and that you would go forth with them to what comes next. But Lord, as we, as we prepare to come to your table this morning, we also pray as your Son has taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.